Thank you, Ramey, and the worship team. Let's stand together as we hear from God's Word from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 33. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel." And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. We're looking at obscure people and critical purposes this morning. The writer of Luke has recorded divinely the account of the birth of the Savior. And with the birth, redemptive action is put into action. Redemptive purpose begins. Redemptive accomplishments are underway, all initiated by the coming of the Messiah. Luke's account is historically accurate, carefully thought out, astutely detailed. Matthew and John both record the birth of Jesus. Matthew from the historical side, John from the divine side, and they all agree together with what Luke is presenting here. Dr. Luke was a very consistent writer. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. And, of course, he wrote the book of Acts. He was consistent historically, but he was also consistent with his readers. He knew his readers were Jewish readers for the first, in the first century, and they were accustomed to testimony. Testimony being affirmed as the Old Testament required by two or three witnesses. And so Luke gives us an impeccable account of the birth of Jesus Christ. From verse 21 down to verse 39, he brings in three separate witnesses, three testimonies. The parents of Jesus, a man called Simeon, and an older woman named Anna. Luke looks at these eyewitnesses. He corroborates the identity of the child through their faithful testimony. If you're going to have witnesses to be believed, you have to tell us that they are credible witnesses. And Luke does precisely that here in the second chapter. It's critical that we understand the credibility of these witnesses. Joseph, Mary, Simeon, Anna, they are all righteous people living in the land of Israel. They are godly. They have a virtue of a witness that is so critical to their testimony. So their testimony cannot be questioned in any way. 
we have confirming evidence here of the fact that Mary brought a child, the Savior, the promised Messiah, into the world. Joseph and Mary were righteous. We know that from other accounts in the scripture that Mary was chosen because of her righteous life. We know that Joseph, when he heard that Mary was pregnant, was willing to divorce her quietly. He was a righteous man. They were committed to fulfilling the law. In fact, in, these, in this particular passage, in verse 22, 23, 24, 27, and 39, it tells us five times how they were committed to fulfilling the law of God, the Old Testament scriptures. They were obedient. They honored God through their uh, behavior, through their fulfilling the scriptures. They were careful to obey God's word. The testimony given by Mary and Joseph takes place in two scenes. One here in verse 28, uh, verse 21 rather. When eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the first scene is their circumcision of Jesus. Medical science tells us that on the eighth day, the day of circumcision, that vitamin K and prothrombin are elevated above 100%. I have no idea what that means, except when I read about it, it tells me that it's the perfect day for surgery. The only time in a male child's life that he'll be above 100% for healing, for coagulation. Does our God know what he's doing? Circumcised the child on the eighth day. And they called him Jesus. The angel came and told to Mary, you will call him Jesus. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, and you will call your son Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So that's the first scene we have here. The second testimony that we have of Mary and of Joseph takes place in verse 22 to 24. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So the ceremony we have here is the ceremony of purification. The first ceremony took place eight days afterwards, after the birth of Jesus, probably in some area near um, Bethlehem where he was born. This ceremony takes place 40 days. So now you see why I'm speaking on this this morning? We kind of accept December 25th as the birth of Jesus. We know it's not, okay? but we accept that. If you move 40 days ahead, you'll come to February the 3rd. So the purification. So I haven't totally lost it, giving you a Christmas story today. It's 40 days afterwards. And so the mother has been ceremonially unclean for 40 days. She's not able to go into the temple. She's not able to worship according to the Old Testament. So she comes to offer a sacrifice for her purification. Only then can she enter the temple. Only then can she worship. You see the beauty of it here? Jesus Christ allows us to come into his presence to offer worship, 
and to worship together freely. So both circumcision and purification are an indication. They're an outward indication telling us that we are unclean. We can't come before a holy God. We've, we've sung about that this morning. We heard about it. We cannot come before a holy God without the blood, the blood of the lamb, the blood of a sacrifice. And it tells us how desperately we need to be cleansed. So when a woman had a, a child, the male child, the first child, for 40 days she was ceremonially unclean, separated, as it were, from God. So the, uh, they come to the temple, they give knowledge of the, the child, they've called him Jesus already, they've obeyed that part of the scripture, and now they come to the temple to do two things here in verse 22 and following. They came for purification and they came to pay five shekels of silver. Redemption money. Silver is always redemption money. Every firstborn male had to be given to the Lord. You offered him to the Lord's service. Five shekels was the ransom price. And Mary and Joseph are giving testimony to the identity. At the circumcision of Jesus, he is the Savior, for he will save the world. And now they're giving testimony that he is a special child presented to the Lord. It was not required that you take your child to the temple. In fact, it was kind of unusual, unique to do so. But they understood, they, Mary and Joseph, understood this was a special child. This was a unique child. God had given them in a special act through the virgin birth, uh, unique above all the children ever born. He was the son of the Most High. And so Joseph and Mary, by indicating his name and by identifying this child and taking him to the temple, are giving testimony that he is the Messiah, the Son of of God. Clear testimony. The next witness, and the one that I really want to look at this morning, picks up in verse 25 to 32. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the Spirit had revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom, he took him up in his arms and blessed him. And we'll take a look at that in just a moment. So there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Uh, we don't know if he's old. If you see pictures of Simeon, he's always old. But we don't know that he's an old man. He might be a very young man. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, we know very little about Simeon except what we hear about him in this particular text. But the historical context, Israel was apostate at the time. For the most part, all of Israel had departed largely from the worship of the true God. We would say they're un, they unsaved, most of Israel at that time. They talked about God. They knew God on the outside. They practiced certain things. They had a certain zeal for a legalistic approach, many of them. They had traditions, but they were not committed to Jehovah himself. There were only a few righteous people when Jesus came the first time. And I suspect there will only be a few righteous people when he comes the second time. Only a remnant. On the day of Pentecost, when Jesus had been here for three years, there were only 120 that gathered for prayer on the day of Pentecost. Always a small group looking 
for the Messiah. To be sure, conditions were bad at the time of Jesus' birth. They had lost their political independence. They were under the thumb of Rome. There was cruel King Herod. There was the externalization of Israel, practicing outwardly the form. There were the legalistic scribes who had hundreds of laws that you had to follow. There were the worldly-minded liberals, the Sadducees. They hadn't heard from the prophets for over 400 years. Yet, during all of this darkness, this degradation, this despair, there were a group of people looking for the Messiah. And I trust there's a group of people here this morning who's looking for his return. A small group who look for his return. They were looking for the consolation of Israel. Verse 25 tells us there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The people of Israel had not heard from God for 400 years. The book of Malachi closes off with the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. It closes with the prophecy, the Messiah is coming. And by this time, very little Israelites were really looking for the Messiah. It's been 2,000 years. We still look. We still wait. And people were asking then, people are asking today, where is the promise of his coming? I'll tell you this morning, God keeps his promises. God does not fail his promises. Simeon was a common name. We don't know much about him, as I said. Simeon simply means God has heard. And again, I don't know if he's an old man. He says at the end of it, I'm ready to die. But he might have been a young man who was ready to die because he had met the Messiah. And you know, once you meet Jesus, you're ready. You're ready. If he comes or he calls you, you're ready. Either option is absolutely fine with me. I'm not in any hurry. But whenever he's ready, we're ready. And so he was ready. So let your servant depart in peace. Simeon was representative of expectant Jews. He personifies the true believing remnant in Israel. He trusted for his salvation by faith and grace alone. You say, how could he do that? Messiah hadn't come. Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. They believed the Old Testament scriptures, as Simeon did. They believed that Messiah would come and deliver them from their enemies, their oppressors, and their sins. They lived expectantly, waiting for the Messiah, a small remnant. Now, Simeon is described in several, uh, several categories. First of all, his character. We read that he was righteous and devout. Very simply, righteous has to do with his relationship with God. Devoutness has to do with his relationship with, with people. I think I can make it very simple there. He was righteous. When the Bible says somebody is righteous, it does not mean that they are justified before God because of what they've done. It means they're justified before God because they have faith. It's faith righteousness. It's impossible for us to do anything to please God. God only can declare a sinner righteous. So he was a righteous man. And so when the Bible says a man is righteous, a woman is righteous, they are considered righteous because their sins were paid looking ahead to Calvary. He was a true believer. It says he was righteous, and then it says he was justified. And then he was devout. 
That devoutness has to do with what I would call sanctification, living a pure and holy life. In fact, the word for devout here is the word for cautious. He lived a cautious life. He walked cautiously. He lived reverently, if I can say it that way. He lived a reverent life. And I think you mentioned this morning, Ramey, there's a sense that we've often lost of the reverence when we come into the presence of God. When we pray, when we read his word, when we worship together, there needs to be a true reverence. And he was a reverent man. He was cautious. He just didn't rush into the presence of God. He lived cautiously. He was careful to honor God. He was careful to be an example to others. That defines his character. He was justified by faith, and he lived a righteous life, a true remnant man. Let's look at his theology in verse 25. Verse 25 gives us his theology. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. We all wait. In fact, we have rooms that are devoted to that. We call them waiting rooms. <laughs> I'm in the waiting room. Where are you now? I'm in the waiting room. And some of you are physically there, and some of you are spiritually there, waiting for God to do something, waiting for a prayer to be answered or something to change in your life or in your circumstances. In the waiting room, we spend a lot of our time waiting. Waiting, I think, is one of the hardest things we have to do. It's hard for me to wait. We have waiting lines. We wait to be seated. We wait for the computer to do what it has to do. Uh, I had to call the doctor's office the other day, and I was put on hold for one minute. And then the voice came back and said, your wait time is now two minutes. And then the voice came back a minute later, your waiting time is now, this is true, four minutes. Your wait is now six minutes, and then it was eight minutes. <laughs> Just the waiting time kept getting greater. I think it should have been going the other direction. We hate to wait, but we do a lot of it. Uh, a report a few years ago said that we spend an average of six months waiting at stoplights. That sounds an awful lot to me. Five years waiting in line. Well, Simeon, the wait is over. You've been waiting for the consolation of Israel. You're here at the temple. And the Parcleus, the comforter, the exhorter, has come. The only one who could bring the Parcleus, the help, the comfort that Israel needed, and that he said the Gentiles needed as well, was going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And the rabbis called this person Menachem. Remember Menachem Megan? Menachem is simply consolation, the comforter. They were waiting for the comforter. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and bring them comfort. Over in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, where the tone changes from chapter 39 in Isaiah to chapter 40, the whole uh, book changes, Isaiah begins with, comfort ye, Menachem, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, speak comfortably, to Israel, the time of their warfare is over. The comforter has come. When Jesus left his apostles, just before he left, he said, I'm going to send you another who is just like me. That's what it is in the Greek, just like me, 
and he will be the comforter. We sing the comforter has come. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same. So we don't have to be afraid of the Holy Spirit, do we? He's just like Jesus, and he's the comforter. So the, Jesus came as the comforter, and he sent us the one who is the comforter into our lives. Simon had hope for the coming Messiah, for the comforter, for Menachem to come, the one who would bring redemption to Israel, the kingdom of God uh, that was promised to Abraham and to David. He believed the prophets. He believed Isaiah. He believed that the consolation was coming, the time was coming when Israel would be delivered from their oppressors and man would be delivered from sin and iniquity. Uh, Simeon apparently cared about people because he was looking for the Messiah, not just for himself, because Simeon knew that legalism didn't save. He knew the Pharisees were leading the people into legalism, hundreds of things they had to do or not do. The Sadducees were leading the population to liberalism. There's no resurrection. There's no supernatural. There's no angels. Don't worry about it. The zealots of that day were leading the people into the political field. Politics is going to win the day for us, and I think we can conquer these Romans, and we can take over. And then, then there were the Essenes. Let's go out into the desert and be nice and quiet, and something will happen to us out there in the desert in self-denial. All these different groups, and we see them today, don't we? Uh, liberals and uh, those who want us lead us into legalism or into uh, other areas, acts of self-denial. He knew it was all wrong. There's only one truth. There's only one truth. It's in Jesus Christ himself. And Simeon was a just and a righteous man. He was cautious. He was careful. He was reverent. He knew the law of God. And he knew that the consolation of Israel was coming. And he wasn't going to die until he came, the consolation. And the Roman occupation, the, the situation just heightened the hope for the Jewish remnant. The worse Simeon's nation got, the more his heart ached. When would the Messiah come? When would the prophecy come? And maybe some of you are wondering, how much worse can the world get? How much worse can things go? How much darker can the world get? The people were deep in sin and apostasy, unbelief and legalism and liberal theology. They were under oppression from their enemies. It was a dark, depressing, despairing time. And if you look at the world without the lens of the word of God, it is dark. It is depressing. It is despairing. But here's a faithful man, a part of a small remnant, justified, living a sanctified life, looking for the coming of Menachem, the consolation of Israel. Then look at his unique anointing in verse 25. And we notice a number of times that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's a remarkable man in this sense. He was exemplary in his character. He was exemplary in his interpretation of the word of God, the literal interpretation of the word of God. And he has an anointing for service upon him. It says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit was upon him. Permit me to give you just, just kind of a broad overview of the Old Testament Anyone living in the Old Testament before the cross of Jesus Christ, they are saved the same way that we're saved, by faith and grace alone. 
They knew that God would prepare a lamb. Think back to Abraham. Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. The only way they could get forgiveness was through the lamb. They didn't know what that might look like. They trusted God for their forgiveness. But the Holy Spirit was there to convict them. The Holy Spirit was there to open the eyes of their heart, uh, to show them their failures against the law of God. The Holy Spirit was bringing conviction. He brought them to repentance. He brought them to faith. He drew them by grace and mercy and forgiveness. It was the Spirit who moved them for obedience. Now there's a sense in which that's a new expression of the Holy Spirit in our day, new dimensions of the work on this side of the cross, but it does not mean that the Old Testament saints were without the Holy Spirit. Jesus said just before he died to his apostles, the Holy Spirit has been with you, and now he will be in you and upon you and through you. So whenever you see that expression uh, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon somebody, it doesn't mean they didn't have the Holy Spirit before that. In fact, you read in the Psalms, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. It doesn't mean he wasn't around anymore. It just means that he's going to anoint. He's going to come upon an individual for a specific ministry. Uh, Samson, the Holy Spirit came upon Samson for specific acts. But most often, the Holy Spirit comes upon people to allow them to speak the word of God, to allow them to communicate. And that's what's happening here to Simeon. He's going to speak in behalf of God. There's a consistent pattern throughout the, uh, the book of Luke here. The Holy Spirit coming upon somebody is uh, indicative of a special anointing. The Holy Spirit was upon him because he was righteous, he was devout, and he was anointed. And the Holy Spirit said, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ, till you see the Messiah, till he gets here. I don't know if any of us had that promise. I think it would be great, but we don't have that today. But we know he is coming again. And so he came, verse 27, in spirit. That means something's going to happen. So you kind of want to lean forward. The Holy Spirit. So when he came by the Spirit into the temple, and Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, God brings them together. And it's the part of the temple that's called the Hirion, uh, the outer court. Women were not allowed in the inner temple. And how specific Luke is in telling us exactly where Simeon goes and where they're going to have this meeting place, the court of the women, where he would meet Mary and Joseph and a baby. And that's a massive area outside the temple. There would be people everywhere, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people at any, one, any given time. But God in his wonderful providence prearranges. Mary and Joseph had no idea who Simeon was. They didn't have a clue. Simeon didn't know who Mary and Joseph were. And God's going to bring them together. The Spirit of God leads Simeon to the place just where Mary and Joseph are with that little baby. Verse 27, and the parents bought the child to carry out the custom of the law. And Simeon comes by divine direction, and they meet at exactly the right minute. Can you believe that? Of course you can. You've seen God do it in your life. 
You've seen God do it here in the church. God brings people together. I can tell you about a, a couple that's been married 47 years that came from two different counties and met in a third county on a Sunday. God brings people together in a wonderful way. God is still doing it. And so he brings them by divine direction. God brings the right people to the right place at the right time. Let's have open eyes, spiritual eyes to see what God is doing. Since God accomplishes all things according to his will, Ephesians tells us, there are no such things as accidents in the absolute sense. There are many events that are not willed by humans. Nevertheless, there are no events not willed in some sense by God who controls all things. There's a divine meaning in all events, if only we can see it. Or we see through a glass darkly. And sometimes we're just simply surprised at what God is doing. And he took the baby into his arms. Can you imagine Simeon? He's been waiting many years, maybe, maybe 50 years or so, we don't know, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for Menachem, and now he gets to hold this little baby. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, he's holding him in his arms. The baby is right there. Let me tell you, we have him in here. Jesus lives within. The Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. Ever as much as Simeon ever experienced that joy, we have that joy this morning, and we celebrate that joy this morning at the Lord's table. If you're a believer, we have him. He has us. We are together. We hold him. And Simeon blessed God. We should be blessing God, and we do bless God. Uh, it's probably an under, understatement. But we have the Messiah, the comforter within us, constantly, permanently. And he was filled with joy. He hadn't seen what was going to happen. He didn't know about Calvary. He didn't know how that was going to work out. But he knew that God had a plan. He just held the helpless babe. And he was overjoyed. And he said, now I can depart. My, what great favor we have. Now we can depart. Let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. We know what Simeon never knew. We know he is our Savior because he saved us. And Simeon says he's going to be a, there's going to be a ministry now to the Gentiles. We know that got fulfilled, don't, don't we? Are you a Gentile? Most of us are probably Gentiles. God has fulfilled his promise, his word, to the gospel to the ends of the world, including us. It came to us. And Simeon starts to sing. There's five songs here uh, in the uh, book of Luke. There's the song of Elizabeth. There's a song of Mary. There's a song of Zacharias. Uh, there's a song from the angels. And the fifth song is the song of Simeon. And I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'll read it for you. Lord, now you're letting your, depart, your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles 
and the glory for your people, Israel. Now I can die. I've seen it. I've experienced Messiah. I've held him. That's a strong testimony. No doubt Simeon believed that he was the Messiah. What a tremendous testimony. Mary and Joseph and now Simeon. This man is utterly unknown. The only thing we know about Simeon, we know about him right here. But he has a remarkable place in redemptive history. For those of us who believe in Jesus, there's a tremendous shift. No longer do we live in the era of promise, the law and the prophets, waiting for the consolation. He's come, he's here, and he's in our midst. Sometimes God calls us to wait patiently. It's not a glamorous task. Most people don't volunteer to be waiters. In that sense, they want to wait. We try to step out on our own sometimes and we fail. We need to learn to wait upon God. Wait for his timing. And as we wait, let's remember that God has not forgotten us. As we wait on the Lord, Isaiah says, we will renew our strength. We will mount up with wings as eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not grow faint. That's what Simeon did. He waited. Sometimes God picks obscure people. When I was about to go into second grade, our family moved very unexpectedly. I still don't know why we moved. But we moved from one town to another, and I had to start a new school. And school year had already started, so I was going to come in late into the class. And so the principal called the second grade teacher down to his office, and she walked in, and I was frightened of her. She was elderly. She looked mean. Her hair was in a bun. She had never married, never had any children, didn't drive. I didn't want to go in that classroom with her. But you know who led me to the Lord? Her. She led me to the Lord. It's a longer story than that. An obscure person with a critical task. Why we move, why she was there, all in God's time. God brings people together. You've had those miracles in your life. You've seen God do that. How God just moves things around. How he does it. Wait patiently for his purposes to be fulfilled. All that could be said of us this morning is it was said of Simeon. We are righteous because of Jesus Christ. We are devout. We are being sanctified. And we're waiting for his glorious return. May the Holy Spirit lead us to fulfill his unique calling for our lives. God still uses obscure people for his critical purposes. As we come to the communion table this morning, we come with grateful hearts that the consolation of Israel, Menachem, has come and has become our salvation. This table is open to all who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you've not confessed Christ as your Lord, we just ask that you allow the 
elements that pass by you do not partake. But for those of us who do know Christ the Savior, we recognize that none of us are worthy except Christ makes us worthy by his substitutionary sacrifice at Calvary. If we've caught a glimpse of the holiness of God and of our human hearts, we know we're not worthy. But we can only be made worthy through the blood of the Lamb. And so the unworthy are made worthy to partake. And partaking, Paul tells us, that we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Simeon was not just waiting. He was looking for the return. He was looking for the Savior to come. The table reminds us that we ought to have an eschatological view. It says, do this till he comes. Looking forward to that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. It's a purifying hope. And now we're going to sing together. Let's stand together.